Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council. Just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 169 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. It has been an interesting last couple of months since the last episode that deserves some personal updates I normally don't do. In March, my full-time job was downsized, and as many others have had their lives turned upside down these last couple months, nothing compares to those that lost their family or friends to this insane pandemic. I hope all of you out there are safe and sound. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for being supportive of this endeavor. It means the world. If you do want to support and have the means, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. It helps pay for all things that go into this podcast. And if you can, amazing. That site again is patreon.com slash washedupemo. Again, if you want to reach out directly, you know where to find me on the socials or washedupemo.com. Okay, on to the episode. Today, welcome Whitmer Thomas. You're saying, who is Whitmer? Whitmer is a comedian that recently had a one-hour comedy special on HBO called The Golden One. It's also an album with the same name that you can listen to on your favorite DSP. Whitmer was a musician before a comedian and had quite extensive knowledge of punk, hardcore, and emo from his days playing in emo and screamo bands. To that, Whitmer jokes throughout his HBO special about bands we all know and love. You should search it out as there isn't a more specific comedy special for our crowd. Whitmer was a joy to talk to and we had a blast talking about his inspirations, his late mom's band, and being creative in both music and comedy. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and you have no excuse but to watch Whitmer's special. You're home anyway and you need something to help laugh and have some time away from anyone else that's in your vicinity. No excuses. This is episode 169 of the Washed Up Email podcast with musician, comedian, and star of the Golden One HBO special, Whitmer Thomas. before we start have you heard of washed up emo do you know what we're up to or i'm up to oh yeah big time no shit really? come on are you kidding me i don't know yeah man <laughs> you're talking to the quintessential um emo uh got comedian who has uh, about who mostly talks about emo <laughs> <laughs> good i just wanted to make sure growing up in florida and uh, alabama line um, I actually spent some time down in that area for a spring break once. It was pretty interesting. And I was wondering how people found punk. How did you find punk down there? Or what was the catalyst? My brother was a huge fan of uh, punk music, you know, like West Coast skate punk. 
uh, my brother's five years older than me, so he would always listen to Pennywise and um, Screeching Weasel, and uh, he he really liked, he had this um, mixed CD compilation, Beer Nuts and Survival of the Fattest and from Fat Records. So those were kind of my introduction CDs, like just in general, you know. It was like I liked, um, I would listen to my mom's band play, and then uh, I liked uh, Billy Joel, and then... And then I liked those bands and those songs. And uh, but the real introduction, like the big game changer for me was um, my brother. I wanted him to get me. A, he was going to the CD store with my cousins. You know, they're all older. So I wasn't allowed to go for some reason. I had to stay at home. And I begged my brother to buy me a CD. And him um, and my cousin Wilkes, they're both in the stand-up special. They um, bought me a a, a Blink-182 Cheshire Cat. And uh, that just uh, changed my whole life, truly. Like, my whole life changed in that moment. How so? Uh, There's just something about it. The way that this, the album starts with Carousel and uh, the bass line made... You know, my mom had bought me a bass guitar. She really wanted me to be a bassist because she just... I, I think she thinks all basses are... There's, it's hard to find a good bass player was kind of her her thing and she said so you'd be a good bass player and you'd be the one that everybody finds and you'll be like a really hireable musician i didn't like playing bass because I, I really wanted to bang on a guitar and strum it and but then i heard mark hoppus's bass line and carousel and i was like you know i was 10 and i was like holy shit that's the bass i and i forced my brother's friend to teach me how to play it and it just it just like changed everything for me like playing music the way that how funny they were uh, like in the songs that they sang it was like it, I know that they were probably like 20 when they recorded that but I was 10 and it lined up perfectly so yeah it was just a, a big time change and and then I think the next year Enema of the State came out and you know they were big time but uh I was lucky to hear like their early stuff first and it was a huge thing and then you know I that was just the gateway for me like I skateboarded and then I had this Blink-182 CD and then I would ask my friends at school or my friend's older brothers, like, if they liked punk and, you know, it was all like kind of pop punk adjacent music. And so I, I finally felt like, oh, this is who I am, you know, in that kind of those first moments of listening to Blink-182. Back then it was, if there was anything skateboarding or punk related, it was good. You know, if it was, if it was fast, if it was really, you know, so if my friend's older brother or my friend was like, oh my God, you got to check out um, this Strung Out album, this band called Strung Out, you know, I, I remember listening to it and being like, this doesn't sound like anything that I've ever liked before. doesn't sound like Blink-182 or, or uh, you know, whoever else, but this is like incredible. Listen how fast the drums are. Just like, also knowing that it wasn't like a popular thing for people to like down in Alabama where I was from, it felt like a very, like a secret almost, you know, it was just so cool to be a skater and a, and a, a guy who liked punk music when I was a kid, because I felt like an outcast in the best way possible. Also, it, it justified my weird little personality. Like I wasn't necessarily like a popular kid in it. And I didn't care because if I was popular, it wouldn't fit with my punk narrative. <laughs> you 
discovering this new music just built onto that. And, and I don't think I disliked a punk band until I was 14. <laughs> Every, so <laughs> that was the moment to get you. If, if, if a band had a marketing plan, they were like, we got to get to wit before he's 14. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And then it was the, the, the album, uh, so long and thanks for all the shoes by no effects. Um, all based on just album covers. I, I'd never heard the music. Um, or maybe my brother saying, yeah, that's cool, man. You should get that. But like, I, I never had heard the, the actual music. It was just album covers. There was, I'm trying to think of the very first ones. Um, in fifth and sixth grade. What, oh, Gutter Mouth was huge. Um, and then Strung Out. I got Strung Out, Twisted by Design after hearing one of their songs. Um I and Pennywise, bro, you know, I also ba- playing bass. I was, bro, him was like this big bass line, and so that was so, you know, so cool for me. Um, and and then uh, Operation Ivy and Less Than Jake, both based on uh, just uh, album covers. Thinking the album cover art was cool. Yeah, the biggest one for me in middle school was AFI um, very proud of you. That one, Davey Havoc, the way that he sounded, how high-pitched his voice was. My voice has always sounded like, always sounded like a 12-year-old. And I just, like, worshipped him. And I still do. I think he's amazing. But, like, as a kid, I just connected so hard with him and how fast all those songs are on that album and how he's just, like, screeching his way through it. That was probably my most listened to um, Spotify <laughs> In, uh, in between sixth and eighth grade, what 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 years were those? Let's see, that would be ninety nine through two thousand two. Nice. Uh, I remember seeing AFI open for um, the Offspring. I think it was maybe ninety six or ninety seven. And when they were done, AFI was done. I screamed straight edge and threw up X's. And Davey looked back <laughs> and gave like the biggest smile. And I was like that's it man i'm good like i'm still good from it like <laughs> that he <laughs> yeah dude that's so cool oh man so nerdy yeah i found this vhs tape at this record store called east hill records in pensacola when i was in middle school i went with my older brother's friends and i bought a vhs tape um i can't remember what it was called it was some like compilation of music videos and live performances and davy havoc is in it and he's talking about punk fashion he's like yeah you know it's like paint your nails do whatever you know don't drink don't do drugs and i was fully struggling with you know this like hate that i had in my heart for drugs and alcohol because of my parents experience with it and i he just like i lived through him in, in so many ways he, he was just the, it, it is the coolest i see him every now and again walking around la i've never spoken to him but i don't know what i would say maybe one day i'll work, work. yeah i don't either I'm so much more nervous to meet him than I would ever be to meet like uh, Daniel Day Lewis or something. You know, <laughs> if I saw, if I had to talk to Davey Havoc, I don't know what I would do. Well, that's things you say that about you know him saying those things and having someone you know to, to look up to because it's not like your environment and you talked about your parents, but also the school or the location of. You know, the it, you're being told by marketing to drink. You're being told by marketing to smoke, even though like it's the, the, it was just this thing that you were supposed to do. 
yeah. And I, I, I just didn't want to do it. And then they, they, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the same with you. And so when I would see people that I loved saying like, do these things, like don't, don't worry about what people think. And then, you know, the next day going to school with my nails painted in middle school, people making fun of me, that was the goal. I wanted people to make fun of me and think of me as being different because I didn't want to be anything like them. If, if like your kid, and that's what I think now, like I have my, an older step nephew who's 10 or 11, he's having a hard time in school making friends. And I'm like, be weird, dude. If you ever get the opportunity, be a fucking freak. Because if you're a freak and people think you're a freak, then you're doing it right. <laughs> you know? I I was really grateful for punk music for that reason, or I am now. I don't know if I was at the time. But go, and going to shows, you know, when you're a kid, that was just the coolest. And getting getting away, and you know, like trying to figure out how to get away. And it was the same in my my childhood. Everybody was just kind of getting fucked up, or uh, you know. So I I, I was. It was just like it was such a fun thing. And also thinking like back then, I remember going to school the day after going to some show, like we saw the suicide machines in eighth grade at this little cafe. And I remember going to school the next day and it felt like I lost my virginity or something. Like I had some huge secret or some cool thing that nobody else experienced. Do you remember like Um, wearing the, like the shirt the next day and it like, it was crisp, but it also had like the smoke. Yeah. You know, it was like still smoky from whatever crappy venue. Uh, I always remember that. Yeah, smelled terrible. <laughs> yeah, but you yeah, but like you had to wear it. Starch shirt. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, dude, the best. I remember being a kid and wearing a studded belt all the time, and like I and you know and skating and then wearing whatever band shirt I had and and being so excited for when I fell skateboarding, if I was wearing a studded belt, it would rip holes in my shirt on the side yes. and being like, Oh, I hope I have some good falls today <laughs> because <laughs> it's going to really authenticate my punkness with my cool shirt, my strike anywhere shirt. Oh, hell yeah. Strike anywhere. That'd be so good. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. Strike anywhere would come through Pensacola, Florida all the time. So, they were a big band for me. When did you start going to shows? Like what age? In eighth grade. My brother, my brother started taking me to shows um, because I, he said, come to the show and film it. And he would just make me sit in the back and film it on a little DV camera so him and his friends could watch it later. So, so that became kind of my job. Uh, he was like 17 or 18 and would let me go with them as long as I filmed it. And, uh, as long as I filmed the show. And yeah, so that became my, that was my out. Like just, but, and then I remember we would always watch the videos and the camera would be shaking up and down the whole time. Cause I would be head banging. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I was 13. I think when I started, my brother started taking me out and the first like cool real show I ever saw was catch 22 and suicide machines. And I, I went back to school and I was telling my friends, I was like, I saw the suicide machines yesterday. My brother took me and they were all so jealous. And then my brother became like the shepherd of my little friends. And so he started to have to like go take them to, to the shows. So it was me and my brother and all of his like 18 year old friends. And then a bunch of 13 year olds 
and he, my brother was cool enough to let us get in the back of his van and go. <laughs> That's awesome um, of him. Yeah. He was, yeah, he's still, I mean, he's the best. And I, it's crazy now. I don't even know how I knew that shows happened. <laughs> I think about I that same thing. What about message boards? I feel like they were on message boards. Or you saw a flyer or like, right? Yeah, there was a fly, there would be flyers at the venue. And then there would, there was a um, message board, Gulf Coast hardcore scene would post the shows. I would look at it every single day. And a really fucked up thing that my best friend to this day and, and main collaborator, Clay Tatum did. He directed my comedy special with me. The, the thing that I'll never forgive him for is um, he, you know, was, has always been really good at Photoshop. He photoshops the message board to say that because Taking Back Sunday would never come through Pensacola. <laughs> um, they famously did, and I wasn't able, I couldn't fit in the car to go. What? And uh, they were opening. They were opening for Grade, and um, they all, everybody bought their demo. And they and my friend Brock still has their little demo that has these old. It's like a paper demo. Wow. Um, and so, but I wasn't able to go and I was the biggest Taking Back Sunday fan. And so Clay, as a prank, not realizing that it would just break me, um, photoshopped on the message board that Taking Back Sunday was coming to play the American Legion in Pensacola. And so I told everybody about it and everybody knew it was a prank. And then Clay or somebody just felt too bad and broke it to me that they're not actually playing. And Clay was like, I didn't know that you would actually think it was real. He like printed it out and handed me the piece of paper. Wow. Um, so nice job, Clay. I'll never forgive him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's why Adam, uh, would be go, would be at shows and, and was in high school when I was in college, uh, in North Carolina. So he would always be at all the shows and, um, it was kind of funny. He was like, oh, I'm moving up to New York to join a band. We're like, oh, that's crazy. <laughs> and then... Uh, oh, yeah. Sunday. Good luck with that, pal. Yeah, good luck with that, buddy. New York's going to yeah. eat you alive. You know? <laughs> it's like, nope. Uh, Man, he, um, he, he tweeted at me one time because I do a joke that's based on one of his lyrics in my in set. And, uh, and uh, he tweeted at me like, what is this joke you do about me? And I, I tweeted back like, it's from a place of love. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so that's interesting. So kinda... I hope he's cool. No, he is. He's super cool. I think, I mean, it's funny you bring that up. Is like, you know, w- emo itself and he, being a comedian, you know, like it seems like why it's, the genre is a punchline to people. When in reality, it has a longer history in life. Asking a comedian, why is it a punchline? And do you think what do you think that would will ever change? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think that um, it's similar to goth. You know how people just think of goth as being funny. Um, emo is the same way. I think people think of it as being like a whiny period with really terrible fashion. Most people didn't weren't really even aware of emo until like 2008, which I feel like in in my mind emo was kind of had already been a thing. You know, I guess it, it was like uh, hot, like Panic at the Disco time in 2008. But I, I don't know why people think it's funny. I think because people will th- always think that people. Um, 
kind of trying super hard is cringy and, and funny, but that's what I like so much about emo music and, and is the commitment to it, you know? Um, I'm not really sure why people, you know, and if, if I'm in LA where people are more kind of aware of emo music and I say I used to be in an emo band, people just kind of laugh. And I'm not really trying to be funny right there, but that's what I mean. how it is because That's... people remember it's almost like, um, I don't know what it's like. It's like saying, uh, people think of MySpace. People just think of a time where it's like, Oh, you mean the guys with the straightened hair and the, you know, the, the red jumpsuit apparatus or whatever the band was <laughs> that, that like had a, had a hit. Um, but I don't necessarily think of my v version of emo is kind of different. Like a lot of the bands that I grew up listening to, I think they all sound very different than each other. It wasn't, I don't, they definitely didn't think of themselves as emo bands, you know? When did like punk, like, where did you find emo? When did you find those bands? Like what, what about it appealed to you? Uh, I remember the night exactly. Um, it was in eighth grade again, and um, I felt re I was at, staying at my friend Mason's house. I felt feeling really sick, so I went to sleep really like at a weird hour at like six p.m. And uh, his older brother, um, who was really good friends with my older brother, um, had a Get Up Kids CD, and so I I just pressed play while I laid in bed and tried to go to sleep and fell in love with. Um, I don't remember what album I heard that and I was it was like a, a kind of a it was like punk but more emotional and then sometimes it was really slow and there was piano and I don't think I had ever heard emo before maybe other than that Blink-182 song title is called uh, they had that song emo I never heard the word emo but I loved it and then someone told me that's emo music and I was like that's cool as hell emo that's awesome I'm emo I'm emo even though at the time I was like in eighth and ninth grade, I was in a pretty aggressive punk band and I dressed really punk. You know, I would wear like a bondage belt and stuff. And, um, but I didn't, it wasn't me. <laughs> Once I, I heard get up kids, I was like, this is it. And then, um, somebody in that same time period, I found, you know, like my brother was so ahead of me. He was, he was like, get up kids are cool because get up kids, Oh, they're friends with Coalesce. Oh, you got to check out the Coalesce split with Get Up Kids. And uh, and so he was kind of ahead of me. And then I was like, oh, you like that? And he was always so enthusiastic. Anytime he found out that I liked something that he liked, which we liked all the same shit, but I was just younger and so much further behind him. So he gave me um, Save the Day, Can't Slow Down. And then that was all. It wasn't really emo, but it was like so fast. And, and uh, it was pretty much straight punk. But then, in that right in that time, they came out with um, with uh, through being cool, which was kind of more leaning emo. So, I uh, it was just perfect timing, you know. Eighth grade, it was like being sick in a fever dream, listening to the Get Up Kids, and like everything. My my, I'm just like, oh, in six months, I'm gonna look like a, a totally different version of this subculture that I'm a part of. I mean, it really had that effect. I mean, it, it changed what people were doing. 
yeah, man. And it, it was funny because some of my friends were really hateful. Like they hated emo music. They were listening to like global threat. Like clay was the last punk. We always say my, my best friend clay. He was the last true punk because it took him the longest to like shit to, to kind of accept that the weaker thans were cool or <laughs> whatever it is. And they were only cool because they were adjacent to propaganda. And, um, you know, it just took them, but, but that was the truth. It was like, I, everybody was frustrated with me once I started getting so into emo because I think they knew that I wanted, I was going to want the band to change genres, change the name of the band to something different, which totally happened. But it was also, it was perfect because I was like heart sick. You know, I was like a really heart sick kid. And I think emo music kind of echoed that more than the, the pop punk stuff that I was like listening to. I feel like the pop punk was, well, uh, it was, it was, it was fine. You know, it was, I love suicide machines or I love those things, but it didn't hit me. Like it didn't help if that makes sense. No, I wasn't getting chills until yeah. I, I listened to get up kids and that stuff started to give me the real deal chills. Yeah, if I can get so-and-so to hear this song, she'll know how I feel. <laughs> I think I think in college for some public speaking class, I, 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 I spoke a Get Up Kids song off of 4-Minute Mile. Oh, man. Like as a presentation. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty bad. That's really good. That's great. <laughs> you were in bands, too? Me and Clay were in a punk band just kind of a regular fast annoying punk band and um you know my mom was in a band so we had like this rehearsal spot in the corner of our house and with like a drum set and an amp or you know my mom's drummer's drums or my whoever you know and my brother was also in a band he was in a hardcore band it was just already set up for us to go like play so we we were in a punk band and we like recorded little demos using my mom's equipment and then um that band changed and as our taste changed and in, into a emo band called say your last of course <laughs> um, we were very serious about this band though and say your last kind of shifted to screamo and then kind of like a mosh emo screamo hardcore whatever we kind of went through the whole spectrum you know, that band, We I, by the time I was in high school, we were touring and we would open up for my big brother's band and a lot of cool bands opened for us, like um, Chiodos opened for us. And oh, no way. Portugal The Man opened for us one time. <laughs> yeah, that band, you know, Portugal The Man, they had that hit song a couple years ago. The Night, so Chiodos, the Chiodos Brothers is what they were called back then and Portugal The Man were on tour and they didn't, I don't know. They they were coming through Pensacola, playing at the end of the line cafe. We were on the show. They realized, I think, once they got to the venue, that most of the people who were there to see us were like, or the show were our friends. You know, there was maybe like twenty people there. So they're like, "Will y'all play last, and we'll open?" And uh, yeah, totally. And that night, they Chiotos the uh, Chiotos found out. They got the call that Equal Vision signed them. Wow! And so we like had this celebration hangout at um, the end of the line cafe in Pensacola. I was a kid. I was like 
maybe 15, you know, and they were probably 20, maybe 20. But, uh, I remember thinking like, that's the fucking dream. Like <laughs> they just got signed by equal vision records. Like their life has changed forever. <laughs> um, that was a crazy time so, working there. We had like Chiodos going, we had fall of Troy armor for sleep. Uh, who else? Oh man. Circus survive. Like uh, or those guys, huge you know chiotos like those guys toured their asses off and like they played a venue and 10 kids would show up but then the next time they played those 10 kids told all their friends and then they showed up so it was one of those like i feel like there's similarities to like comedians and bands because you really do have to you have to go out dude it sucks yeah you're right um it's like uh you know i've been touring as a comedian for seven, six or seven years now. And it's been, this year is the first time I've ever sold any tickets. And these are just for like hundred seat rooms, you know, they're, not, they're like a hundred tickets available. And I'm talking any tickets. Like sometimes I'm not, I'm not selling out all these shows and I've been doing it for seven years. And so it's like, and with bands, they tour so much more extensively. It's just like, they have an out. It's like, Oh God. Yeah, there is a lot of similarities. Like, you're almost touring on the shitty uh, shows that everyone gets thrown on, and it's all pay-for-play. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like... Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes you're doing a tour with, with comedians together, but a lot of times you're at whatever venue, and you're you're thrown on a bill, right? Uh, yeah, usually how it works is... Well, now, that's how it has always worked until a few years ago when I started doing the golden one, kind of like one-man show thing. Oh, I would right. just go and book it. This is the golden one show. This is like my hour-long show. Uh, and uh, that made it more easy, honestly, to like get people to come because they knew what was coming. Instead of me going through Atlanta and, and doing a, a 45-minute set on a showcase with three other comedians who are all doing 15, you know what I mean? It's a it's a easier way to to plan a tour and to like book it and to promote it. It's I mean, but you're right. Like that's like you saying that it took that long to get that point. I feel like there's bands today that think like after their first tour, like everything's going to be easy, and it's like we'll get ready. <laughs> like I mean, Portugal. Dude, not. Think about it for Portugal. They just got their hit. I know. After how many albums? Like. Right. That was that was over 15 years ago that right. I opened for them. <laughs> that, that's psychotic. Yeah, and you know what's really crazy now? I think about it when I do a show out of town and it, the audience is really light. I, I try, if even when the show's good and it seems like they're really enjoying themselves and laughing and stuff. I I was talking to Jonah Ray about this the other night like he was, you know, we were talking about going to see Dillinger four when we were kids and, 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 uh, and I don't remember the audience. I just remember how much fun I had. I don't remember there not being anybody there, but looking back, I'm pretty sure there was no one there. There might've been 15 people in the crowd, but that's not how I remember things like sitting in the crowd, watching all these amazing bands like strike anywhere is a great example. I'm pretty sure there was maybe 20 people or against me. I would see against me all the time. I saw against me before the, and their drummer didn't even have a real drum set. And I don't think there was anybody in the crowd, but I don't, I remember in my mind. It's like, it was like a packed house and 
but I bet you against me remembers it a very different way. <laughs> right. But that's that feeling, you know, you got something from that night, sort of like when you have a, a night with your best friend and nothing really happens, but everything happens. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The best nights of my life, like my, the thickest memories in my brain. It's like nothing actually happened. We sat on a porch. Right. When I was a kid in a small town in Alabama, if a new kid came to school, like there's this new kid named Alex, who I'm still really close with. He came to school in 10th grade wearing a Thursday shirt. And I was like, I don't know anything about this kid, but we're going to be friends. Here we go. And then, (laughs) you know, like he didn't, he didn't skate. He didn't like any of the same movies I liked, but he liked Thursday and he liked the bands that Thursday liked. So we were friends and then we became best friends because of that. Yeah. Uh, Do you know the band Hope's Fall? Oh yeah. Hope's Fall was huge for me. They would like tour to where I lived. So we would see them too a lot. What about, uh, you know, creating music versus creating comedy? Yeah, um, music comes more naturally to me. I, I it's, it's more easy, I guess. Not necessarily easy. I just feel like it's, it's more natural for me to go and write a song and be really sincere with songwriting. And, and whereas with comedy, it, it's, it takes me a really long time to work out a joke. And I have to do it over and over and over again before I feel like it gets done. You know, so usually it takes over a year to like finish a joke. Whereas with a song, sometimes I feel like I'll accidentally write a song that's done in like an hour. But I didn't do like music and comedy together until a few years ago. That that was a, a new discovery for me. I, I had written, a, you know, I, when I moved to L.A., I was in a punk, more like a kind of garage rock band, kind of um, maybe sort of similar to like the Black Lips or something like that. And with my buddy Clay, and we stopped doing that so we could sort of focus on like writing and acting and directing stuff and making like sketch videos and stuff with our sketch group power violence. And I stopped doing music. And then a few years ago, I I decided to record a bunch of songs that I had written really sincerely in this kind of dark patch of my life where I felt kind of like maybe I had failed out here in LA and I I didn't think I was going to really amount to anything. And, really starting to get become kind of obsessed in a very unhealthy way with my mom calling me the golden one before she died all the time, stuff like that. So, but then when I hear, heard the first mixes back of the album, I couldn't stand my voice and I hated the lyrics and because the comedian, you know, inside of me was like, this is so lame. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is so stupid. And so instead of trying to be metaphorical, which is what I was trying to do. I was trying to write good metaphor, like have good poetry in, in the lyrics. And I thought it might be funny if I just kind of sang about what the song is actually about. And I just plainly said it. So if I had a song about my mom drinking herself to death and was trying to be mysterious and poetic, and instead of doing that, I would just say my mom partied to death. And I found that if I did a joke, and then I sang that song, people would laugh at it in, in a way that I hadn't really ever experienced. And yeah, that was the first time ever kind of doing that. And like, it wasn't like an obvious thing for me just to play music. It just, in, in comedy, it just kind of happened. I I think the, 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 the creation part, like music seems to be, 
you know, easy, but this, you know, you said comedy takes a minute, but it seems like they sort of intersected and you did have that excited feeling when that happened and it didn't feel like it was wrong. It felt right. Yeah, it did. It felt right. And, and it also, it, it satisfied that thing I miss so much, which is emo, which is ultimately emo music. I had shifted, you know, like I got older, I started listening to older music and older songwriters and, and newer music. I, I got really into like the Saddle Creek records kind of thing, which is emo in its own way, but it, there, it is more the lyrically, a lot of those bands are much more metaphorical and, and less like, I always make the joke, like, you know, um, in Saves the Day, he has a song where he's like, and I said, Dave, please just drive. Or he's like, if, if next time I see Nick, I'm going to stick some needles in his face. It's like, <laughs> who is Nick? And, oh, you know what I mean? There's not, maybe he is being like metaphorical in the way that, you know, what I don't know what a needle, maybe a needle is something different to him. But I, I think it's the same. I did the same thing that I would have done as a kid, writing in my notebook, writing lyrics, which right. is, I wouldn't have said like the clouds have, uh, le- lifted as I smile upon her rose petaled lips or whatever, I would have said, you looked at me and it made me feel good. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so I just kind of went back to that, you know. It's really, I mean, it is in your face a little bit. It is, it's real. And I think when it got fake, it didn't feel real. And that's when I got offended or that's when the my website and podcast started because it was like that's not real it's almost like a fake thing where you know this emotion is 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 for good it's for it's it's not to be sad on purpose it's sort of to get through and that's that you're totally right and that's what it you know it wasn't just leaning into this sadness it was these people not really being aware of how to articulate themselves and so they they just sang about it very bluntly and it was emotional and and I think that's also why it's why people think of it as being funny is because it is there is this desperation to it that is kind of comical you know like Adam Lazara literally says if you slit slit my throat with my one last gasping breath I'd apologize for bleeding on your shirt that's a perfect joke, like in its structure, everything. If I was to walk on a stage and say that, or if I said, if some character said that in a movie, it would get a laugh. But in that moment, Adam Lazara is saying, if you killed me, I would just feel bad because I might get some blood on you. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so applying that, that line, you could apply to every aspect of my like creative journey in the last few years and it, it kind of works i love that <laughs> i'm only now just now discovering that <laughs> uh, that's this has happened a bunch on the podcast where someone kind of gets figures this out like it really is interesting to see the the similarities and the where this genre has i think deeper meanings than again like what most people would snicker at or laugh i mean it's it's almost like you know you were taken by it and it, it's it's not letting you go but it's also guided you yeah totally it's it might be the same feeling that you get when a teacher yells at you and you can't think of anything else to do but laugh you don't you know i think it's the same thing people hear or somebody's so mad at you all you can do is laugh it's like 
you hear this song on the radio of some person crying into a microphone. Some people don't know what to do, so they laugh. Some other people, they cry too. Um, I think as a kid, I would cry too. Now I'm somewhere in the middle, and I really I appreciate both sides. For the special, I think there was a few quotes which I had I had forgotten about. No one spoofs emo music better. I don't know. I think maybe somebody um, from Vulture said that about me because um, I, a long time ago that I was sort of known years back for um, doing a, a parody, kind of a joke about aging as uh, Blink-182 ages, how um, Mark Hoppus seems to kind of gracefully lean into this darker voice Um Whereas Tom DeLonge, you know, this was a long time ago, but Tom DeLonge um, still has the same singing voice and how in the song I Miss You, their voices compared like kind of next to each other. It's like really funny. And now everybody kind of makes that joke. But back then, I think there wasn't anybody that I knew doing that bit. So I like um, that. So that's kind of where it started from. Yeah. So people became aware of me as like, uh, a guy who spoofs like emo singing and emo voices and a lot on stage. And when I would host my show power violence with my friends, we would often do bits like that, like that. And, and then I think building on that Mark Hoppus finding out about the joke and then him and me and uh, Jonah Ray and Ali Kohler from upset, we kind of um, formed that little band to play one time and, um, that probably I blew your mind. The song with, yeah, it was the best night of my life. <laughs> it was, uh, it was insane. I was standing next to Mark Hoppus. He was playing. You know, we played "Damn It" too, and uh, we played "Dinosaur Junior" song. We played a bunch of cool songs. You played "Boxcar." We played "Just right? Like Heaven" by The Cure. We played "Boxcar." Yeah. Um, we. What else did we do? Oh, we played Molly's Lips, which is the same exact chord progression, top to bottom, as Boxcar, just because we thought it was funny. It was just a dream. It, I I don't think I've ever been so excited in my life to be on stage, like uh, as when I, when the leading the moments leading up to him, like kicking it to me to sing Tom's verse and and miss you, like I mean, it's a pretty. It's like, and I always say that that was my one make a wish, you know, he was so cool to me and has continued to be such a nice guy to me. And I'm just like, I don't know. I I mentioned them twice in the comedy special and it's kind of like unavoidable for me to mention them in any conversation because of how important that, that band is to me. I mean, it's full circle to have that first CD uh, and then be able to to do that, like I love that. Any other uh, bands for people to listen out for on the special that, that get thrown out there or, or referenced? Let's see. I really reference. I mean, I reference Taking Back Sunday. I, I wonder. Yeah. Oh, the to- the spoken word part really comes from um, Poison the Well. You know that yes. the way that uh, I'm specifically making fun of the voice of the singer from uh, Misery Signals, which was a band that I loved growing up, and I still do. Uh, the way that he would do his spoken word parts, he'd be like, I'll never forget those photos and stuff. The way that uh, that was the last thing she ever said to me. <laughs> um, and so, like, 
Um, and that's literally a bit that, that bit that I'm doing in my comedy special as a 30 year old was a bit that I was doing with my friends when I was 50. <laughs> so it's that. like, uh, you know, like the, that whole chunk of material, um, it's, it's all about taking back Sunday, poison the well, blink 182, uh, misery signals. I mean, hopes fall. They did it too. And I don't know the scream that I do is, is like kind of cool. I always thought Cole S had like the coolest scream. Yeah. Uh, music references to look out for. I think that's it. I, nice. I think like, um, Mark Hoppus gave me the guitar that I play in the thing uh, out of like a, just like a strange, really nice thing that I, I didn't have a guitar whenever we played. I, I had sold all my instruments and my car and everything to try to make rent. And um, when he tech, when we connected to play that show at the Satellite, which is a venue here in L.A., and uh, I didn't have a guitar to play, so I had to borrow a guitar. And he was asking me about the guitar that I was playing, and I said, I don't really know much about it. This isn't mine. And he goes, oh, what, what, what happened to yours? And I go, I had to sell it. And he goes, oh, you don't have a guitar? What kind of guitar would you want? And I was like, I would want a jazz master. And he goes, oh, dude, I got, I got the... He was, like, nice enough to... Like, that's the kind of guy that he is, you know? So, um, And I know that he's, like, sponsored by Fender or whatever. Some peop- some dickheads out there will be like, ah, fuck it, all, all of his instruments are free. But he still had to make some phone calls. So it was a... I, like, cried on the box when I got it. <laughs> it was so cool. Well, that's great. And anything else about the special that you want people to know? I didn't mean for it to be such a kind of em- emotional thing. Like, to- you know, in order to go down there, I had to talk to my family. They were kind of the gateway to me getting to do the show at the Floribama, you know, um, and then I just figured I, if I'm going to go on stage and tell all these jokes about my aunt and my dad or whoever, you might as well get to meet them so that they can humanize themselves. And it is, it's been a, it's been a really cool thing. And in, in the wake of this comedy special, how our relationships have evolved and, and to, to kind of a, a, a nice thing that has, has kind of changed my life in a really special way. But the, the most special thing that has happened is my aunt let me, go through storage and I found all of my mom's band's recordings, which is, that's a lot of like the, for context, like in this, in the standup special, I, I compare myself a lot to my mom's, uh, to my mom and how she had this career as a musician that, that didn't work out in the way that she kind of wanted it to. And, um, but I found all of her recordings all the way back to 1975. And, and my hope is that when people are watching this special, if they're interested, they can go, find my mom's music on YouTube or, or wherever it is. I'm trying to figure out how to get it like streamable on Spotify and stuff, but her band is called Sin Twister. And I just want um, people to go look it up and listen to it. Sin Twister is what it's called. And it's um, spelled S Y N T W I S T E R with no spaces. Yeah. So if you watch it and you care about it or you like it, which I totally understand if this thing that I made isn't for you, but if you do like it, Go try to find my mom's stuff because I think it's worth checking out. You having that music is really important. And it's, I think that's, that's amazing that um, she had that music going back that far. 
Yeah, yeah, dude. It's uh, it's pretty fucking cool. It's uh, and I hadn't I hadn't heard it since I was a little kid. I had all these memories of it, you know? Like at the end of the stand-up special, I play the song that my mom wrote, which is, I guess, a spoiler, but whatever. It's a comedy special uh, called He's Hot. And I just sort of wrote that from memory. <laughs> like like a, I wrote the cover of it from memory and just from looking at a VHS tape that I had of them singing it. But like, it's been a trip to hear like these actual recordings with full bands and like, you know, it's been a... a crazy crazy cool thing Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo. And Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shuttle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com